paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. America and Christianity are like baseball and apple pie, and we celebrate them together. I was 16, 17 years old when I became a Christian. I'm an evangelical minister. I've been a Christian my whole life. I'm a Christian nationalist. I have nothing to be ashamed of because that's what most Americans are. Is Christian nationalism Christian? Um, no, it isn't. We should be blazing forth as a countercultural example, and instead, we're leading the charge of malice and division. Christian nationalism uses Christianity as a means to an end, that end being some form of authoritarianism. Being a Christian is about the values of inclusion. Christian nationalism is certainly not based on the values of the gospel. God wants America to be saved. They're told over and over and over again that you're in danger. You need to fight if you don't want to lose your country. We are in a civil war between good and evil. This is not a movement about Christian values. This is about Christian power. What happens to the people who don't believe this stuff? We are on the precipice. God is on our side. We're taking our nation back. The thing that keeps me up at night is that we lose democracy. Does that seem possible? Yes. Christianity at its best is committed to love and truth and justice. If we do this right, what a country we will be. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Dan Partland. He is the director of many things, but his latest film, God and Country, is a documentary all about the Christian nationalist movement. If you are unfamiliar with them, they are Christians in name only. They are the kind of folks who think that America is a Christian nation and that we should be following the Bible and a distorted view of that. Some people call them Yal Qaeda. Basically, they're America's Taliban. The film opens February 16th, 2024, and it is very worth your time to check out. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Tell me a little bit about you and how you even got into filmmaking. I was very interested in politics in high school and college, but in college, I started taking film classes and got very excited about nonfiction film in particular and started to really think that my interest in both was similar, that the point is to reach people and to make an impact. And I started to think that media may be every bit as good or better way to reach people and change the world than just going down the road of politics and policy and that, um, and that it also might be a, just a funner way to do it. So did you end up going to film school? 
I went to a liberal arts college in Connecticut, Wesleyan, that had a strong undergraduate film program. And they had a new professor, a young professor, who they had just brought in, whose focus was nonfiction film, Jonathan Mednick. He became a good friend, and he and some other friends of mine, when we when I graduated, we started a little company together, and we started making documentary films. We actually started doing it while I was still enrolled. It was like, it was just a fun sort of side project. And he was much older, 10 or more years older, and so he had a lot more experience in the world and maturity. And so we took ourselves a lot more seriously than other 20-year-olds were because we had a 32-year-old college professor who was our partner. That's where it all started. And then when I got out of college, I moved to New York City and I started working. I had equal interest in scripted films. And so I started working on a lot of indie features just as a crew guy in New York City. And that was tough because being a crew guy on indie feature, they were great films, but I started to get just discouraged at the how limited the offering was there. And I thought, but there's also, I'm lucky that I have dual interests. I'm really interested in nonfiction stuff. And some of the greatest documentary filmmakers in the world are here in New York City. And it's pretty accessible. So I just went up, I heard that company called Maisel's Films. Albert Maisel's was one of my real heroes in studying cinema verite. And I really wanted verite was what it was all about for me on the documentary side. And so just knocked on the door there and got lucky, got a job. They had a position opening up and I was on staff at Maisel's Films, learning from the very best folks out there. You know, I was on, and that became my sort of original first work family and, and remains that to my to this day. I still remain really close with all those folks. Is that how you came to be on a perfect candidate? No. There was a lot of different things that wove together at that time, but really Jonathan, the my business partner who was a college professor, he had moved to Charlottesville, Virginia. And we my partners and I were going down there a lot and we were shooting a lot of stuff in Charlottesville, different projects, of course mini docs, short docs. And we heard that Oliver North was running for Senate in Virginia. And we thought, well, now that would make a really great documentary. We should really do that because I was a total Iran-Contra junkie when I was in high school. That was, you know, it's a political scandal. It was just, I couldn't, I was just obsessed with it. And then a friend ran into a, another friend at a film festival and, and said, what are you working on next? And it, so this was a friend of mine talking to R.J. Cutler. He said, well, what are you working on next? And R.J. said, I'd like to make a film about Oliver North running for Senate in Virginia. And my friend said, that's interesting because my buddies want to make a film about Oliver North running for Senate in Virginia. Maybe you guys should meet. And so that's how Ted and I got connected to R.J. and David. And the four of us worked on and off on that. R.J. and David were older and more experienced and had great connections. And we learned a lot from them. They were the uh, producer directors, but Ted and I worked on the early days and then we left the project for a while to do Welcome to the Dollhouse. And then we came back on and worked on it more in the finishing days. You've done so much producing and quite a bit of directing as well. Was Unfit your first feature documentary? Yeah, it was my first feature feature doc where I was producing and directing 
I'd really had a 20 or more year break from features to work in television. And so that was really had become the mainstay of, of my work and my work experience. But untruth, political feature doc like that, first of all, it had to be a feature doc. It wasn't going to be a TV show. And, um, and it also was going to be an independent film because I think the, the sort of inherent politics right now make it very hard for industry sources for Amazon or Netflix or Apple or anything like that to fund something that is out of the gate, I don't know, antithetical to where sort of 40% of the population is right now. That's just a bad math to start out with. But that film is ultimately not actually partisan. It was completely anti-Trump, but it was it was a coalition. The voices in the film were overwhelmingly conservative voices and Republicans. And that was part of the point, which is that this isn't really a partisan issue. It looked at Trump as a phenomenon and at his personal psychology, but also the psychology at work in the culture that that seemed to be making him appealing to people. Tell me, how did God and Country come about? God and Country, like all indie docs, had a indie features of any kind had a circuitous path. It really, my association with, so there, there was a, a producer named Steve Oaken who has a very interesting story himself because he had been instrumental in launching a Christian film label within Sony Pictures. So he came from mainstream establishment entertainment industry and was charged with getting a, a new shingle up that was specific to the Christian audience. And so he had, he really, he wasn't from that world, but he had to learn it inside and out. And he really learned it and, and became immersed in it. And I think made a lot of great friends and connections there and was very influenced by that experience. And then what he, a bunch of other steps happened and eventually he was working at Pure Flix, which was intended to be Christian answer to Netflix. And in the run up to the 2016 election, and basically, I think he just, he saw from the inside how not just that company, but how that whole, about the whole extended Christian media world that he was in was getting radicalized. And I think that's really what led him to want to speak out about it, to find a way to, to find a way to talk about it. He optioned a book by Catherine Stewart called The Power Worshippers. Excellent, excellent bit of reporting, really insightful. And he went through a bunch of steps, but eventually he landed on it. He got it to Rob Reiner, who was very moved by the book and basically said, sent it to me and said, hey, if you're interested in doing this, I, I think you would be a great fit. And then he said to the producing team, he said, look, I want to help this thing get started, but I don't. I think I want to be at arm's length. I don't want to be anywhere near it, ultimately, because I think my presence would be a distraction from the content. And that's not the point. So he, he passed it to me with the idea of just passing it and moving on. And then really he was and until he was at arm's length and really just encouraged me to make whatever film I wanted to make, super supportive in that way. And then at some point later in the game, I think he just was very excited by the content and excited and felt 
adding his name to it, even though it's on some level distracting, it also would be valuable to heightening the profile of the project. And so then he decided to really just be all in on it. And he's been a you know tremendous and passionate about getting the film out there. And as a filmmaker, he, he was a you know fabulous to have in your camp because he really ultimately, I think, understands so much about what the experience of the director is and really wanted to protect the process and let me make whatever I wanted to make. And then in terms of, so the film was, it was a, we didn't share anything that was too rough with him. We shared it to him with him once it was in shape and then just gave great and insightful, you know, craft notes, which is really interesting because I think a lot of the people on the political side want to know if, if he, if this famous Hollywood liberal was actually shaping all the content to turn it into a piece of propaganda or something like that. And the answer is no. The answer is he really engaged with it on the craft level. We were just trying to make a film that was honest and true and that was moving to audiences. And the extent to which, you know, Rob was giving notes on it and shaping content was all about stuff that any crafts person would do. Man, that's dragging here. I don't, or I don't like this cue, or we already know this. She said that already. Let's move it on. Of that nature. But that's because we were also, you know, very much in sync that I said when I signed on to the project that if I was going to be involved, I wanted to be really clear that the film needed to be cr- critical of Christian nationalism, but it needed to be a celebration of Christianity. And that's just a really important thing to me because there's so many people in my life who are genuinely devout and I think represent all of the what's most wonderful about the Christian faith and authentic Christian belief. And I think that you have to turn that up and make sure people are are hearing that as a counterbalance to this totally falsified version of Christianity that kind of takes the language and rhetoric and certain style points and tries to conflate that with actual faith or theology. It's a. It's ultimately Christian nationalism's political movement. It's a political movement masquerading as faith. What has worked so well for them is that if you can claim that your political agenda is is in sync with God, was in sync with Christian teaching, it makes the faithful, if they're hearing this from appropriate sources, from pastors and faith leaders of different sorts, they're more inclined to go along with it. That's who they get their religious teaching from. I think a lot of people got swept up in it unwittingly through bad leadership, but it ultimately distorts the Christian faith. By making it sound like it's a faith, it makes it really impossible for people to criticize. And already when the movie came out, when the trailer came out, importantly, when the trailer came out, the movie isn't even out yet. When the trailer came out, Christian nationalist groups just swarmed on it proving the point before the fact. A movie that they have not seen, they came out with all guns blazing about how this was an attack on Christians and Christianity and they want us to give up our faith and they want to keep it out of the public square in every possible way and all this kind of stuff that is just complete bogus. The movie has nothing to do with that. The movie actually is explicitly a pro-Christian movie and is really led by some of the most respected conservative Christian voices. 
Yeah, I had to go into IMDb and clean up your listing because I don't know if you knew this, but for a while, film was written by Adolf Hitler. Ah, thank you. I don't check on IMDb, but that kind of thing that, uh, yes, this is the age we live in and crowdsourced stuff can be wonderful that there's a lot of everybody is kicking in to try to keep robust databases up to date, but there's just not enough of us. There's not, there's no way to police it or police it adequately. So there gets to be a lot of nonsense. Hey, but I've had my websites and emails attacked and hacked and stuff like that. It's just, it's one of the really gross things that I think speaks to how fearful the the leaders and participants in this movement are. If you represent a a great and worthy idea of any kind, and somebody tells you that your idea is stupid and dumb, who cares? This is really actually a very Christ-like thing. It's like you're going to suffer. People are going to come after you because you're saying something this powerful and true. And they want to put it down because it interferes with their grip on power. But yeah, proponents of democracy don't need to go out and attack people in this kind of virulent way and threaten their safety, their their life, hack their websites and basically just vandalize them online and try to do personal attacks like that. I think it's just also so much ends up being evidence of a deep-seated fear that people talking about this are going to gain traction. They're going to gain traction the more it's talked about, and it is going to diminish the power of Christian nationalists. And I think that's true. So they would really like for people to not be talking about it. Backing up a little bit. How were you at the front of Rob Reiner's Rolodex to give you a call and say, hey, we should do this? Rob and I knew each other a little bit. We had together on a project a bunch of years prior that didn't end up coming together, but we connected on a lot of different levels. And then he knew some of my work. He had seen some different films and was a fan of that work and felt he just felt like I would probably respond to the material. And he was right. And how did you pick your subjects for the film? How did they all come together? Because I did notice you talked about how with Unfit, it was very much using Republicans to criticize Trump. It wasn't a partisan thing necessarily. And I noticed with this one, almost everybody that, if not everybody you interview, are all Christians or real leaders of Christian thought. To have the VeggieTales guys in there was a, a surprise, but a pleasant one. Yeah. Look, when you're... Doing a project like this, I think what you want more than anything is to just have the best voices, the strongest, most authoritative voices, the people who have the best insights. And there are a lot of, there are secular scholars in the film as well. Although, although when I say secular, their scholarship is sec secular. Most of even the scholars in the film are also fairly um, devout people, but not all. You want a mix of perspectives. And the secular voices in the film and scholars, I think, are excellent. But you also want people who have the nuance, who are more similar 
religiously, ideologically, culturally, politically, to people who have gotten swept up in it. So I think that the, the insights that came from the Christian conservatives who we interviewed, I think ended up rising to the top of the heap because I think they just understood it better. And of course, I want you know highlight this is a democracy, and we have to get back to this idea where we can make partners and partnership with people we don't agree everything with, but we respect them, and they have an important contribution to make. And I definitely feel that way about, I'm very grateful to a lot of the folks who are in the film for, for signing on that level and in good faith in the way in that they trusted me that it would be fair that I was looking to be fair and true and to make something that would reach people, not to just make something that was, you know, a hackish piece of propaganda. We don't need any more of that. There's been a lot of that out there. And I think as our political, our sort of siloed media environments continued, I think there's good business in it. Business interests can drive this stuff, which is we saw how in the 80s and early 90s, the format for political talk on cable television or and network television was that you'd have, you'd have someone from one side and someone from the other side, and then someone who was either neutral or a moderate, right? They were either, or sometimes there would be a, the host whose job was to be neutral, and there would be somebody from the middle of the political spectrum, someone from either side. And then they would hash it out. Point counterpoint style, and that is interesting and engaging, and lets you hear from both sides, and that should really be a good thing. But I think what happened was everyone got so sophisticated at talking points, you could actually watch a show like that and learn nothing meaningful because they were all really well orchestrated, market tested talking points where nobody was actually saying what they felt they were saying what was rhetorically powerful or what they thought the messaging should be. And I would say just broadly, I think this came to a head with the 2000 election because, and, and by then Fox News had started already, but it came to a head with the 2000 election because you had two very different candidates in Bush and Gore who really represented very different interests from the country. But if you look at what debates were about, if you look at what was being argued and discussed and political because they were both running to the center for the campaign. The debate was about what the details of prescription drug coverage were going to be in each of their plans. Their plans were almost identical. And the media somehow failed to really differentiate those candidates very much. And we ended up with a dead heat election. It's really hard for 200 million people or whatever, probably is then it was probably only 150 million or 20 million to go to the polls and have effectively a dead heat, nearly dead heat election, both in the electoral college and the popular vote, very close. But really, a little bit before then and then accelerating after that, the format of those panel shows stopped being a point. One guy, one person from one side, one person from another and a moderate. And it went to the new panel is, it's just everybody agrees with each other. That's what the news is now, is we have a panel of everybody who has the same point of view. Now, there's, there, people will say that there's an element of God and country that is like that, which is, yes, everybody is 
all of the speakers. Now we have we give plenty of airtime to people who advocate for Christian nationalism through clip. But everybody we interviewed, it's true. They were they are people who agree on the dangers of Christian nationalism, but they come from a very disparate set of political, cultural, social norms and values. And but they do agree on the danger of Christian nationalism. Your movie's very depressing. I will tell you that. I hate hearing that because I don't think depressing is a constructive emotion, right? I don't think, I don't, don't, I hope that people won't be shut down to it. I think we, I think it is, I think it's a serious film. I think it's a dramatic film. I think it's a worrying film. And I think, I hope that it has a little bit of uplift too, because the irony, I think, of the ickiness and the concerningness, the true danger of Christian nationalism is that Christian values, Christian virtues themselves are the way up. Let's actually start doing some of this stuff. Let's choose our battles and turn the other cheek when turning the other cheek is appropriate. Let's do unto others as we would like people do to ourselves. Let's love our neighbors. And what's more, Christian teaching is really that the command to love your neighbors is really a command to love your enemies as well. And I think we have to get back to that. And I think we try to show that there really is something beautiful in all of that. And yes, I'm very interested in vanquishing this this political movement that calls itself Christian. It's not Christian in any way whatsoever. And I do want people to be super concerned about it because I think it is real danger right now in the United States. I think it has reached a a kind of terminal velocity. It's really going to be hard to roll it back. But there's hope. There is hope. And the hope, I think, comes from this same, this same word, which is some Christian values. Yeah, it is very eye-opening to see the playbook laid bare. And I've grown up with this stuff. I think you've grown up with this as well. To see the Jerry Falwells of the world and just the way that things played out in the 80s with the TV preachers, the way that things played into Reaganism. And it just feels like it was that, and that just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then to see where we're at right now, that's why I'm depressed. Really admire what you've done with this documentary, though. Thank you. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Hopefully, it's concerning without being demoralizing. I think it should be a call to action really for everyone to, I think that we've all kind of looked, seen this going on for a long time and thought of it as mostly benign. It's political organizing. Maybe I don't agree with all that, but I think that some of that has to do with all of us being trapped in our own media silos. And so if you don't leave your media silo, you're probably not seeing the full picture. And so what we really tried to do was to let you into that world, let you into the deep dive that that I'm in, which is just from going to those events and from being on those websites and in the being on those mailing lists, and you just get this constant diet of really ultimately anti-democratic, deeply vitriolic, angry, rageful, really honestly, rageful rhetoric and politics of grievance and of 
a desire to really elevate a white the the white Christian population as the deciders, if you will, in his culture, and to really diminish the voice of everyone else. Have you had a chance to see the film with an audience yet? Yeah, I have. I've seen it only a few times with an audience because it isn't open yet. There's a bunch of screenings coming up, both festivals and then the the actual theatrical openings. But very wonderful seeing it with an audience. The biggest audience we saw it with was we screened the film at the Capitol, actually in the Capitol, which, because the film talks a lot about how January 6th, in some ways, is the ultimate manifestation of the route that this political movement has been on. It was a particularly interesting and special place to be watching the film and thinking about really what it is to be Christian, what it is to be American, and to think through, you know, where we've come to. And so I think that was a really powerful experience for everybody who was in the theater that night. Certainly very powerful for me. As a filmmaker, you think about some other things that are not really, that you think about a lot of craft things that aren't really content that were also very interesting and gratifying, which is that the film has a lot of laughs. And I was delighted to hear that. Who didn't watch it with an audience, so you might not have a sense of it. The film is making a lot of points and it's rifling through a lot of points, but it stops and it takes breaths in different places and you can just and the audience really gets to let off a little steam and enjoys the efforts at levity because we have to also have levity seeing it at the capitol was also very inspiring the thing that's sad to me isn't so much how far this christian nationalist movement has come to what's really concerning to me is just how the rest of us have lost some bit of our faith in what it is to be American. And people, I, I don't identify as Christian myself, though I have plenty of Christian heritage, but people who are devout Christians, I think also has a parallel note of how we've lost our faith in true Christian virtues. I think we have to get back to that as Americans. And for, uh, for the, on the Christian side, Russell Moore is not in the film, but he tells this story, told me this story, and he tells a lot, but about talking to a pastor who was filled with this kind of very angry, vitriolic Christian nationalist rhetoric. And he said to him, what about turning the other cheek in this instance? And the pastor says to him, unfortunately, we found that doesn't work. And his answer to that to me was, it never worked. That wasn't the point. This is central to Christianity. It's something that Christ implored people to do, his followers to do. And people who are faith leaders who are teaching large congregations have determined that they know better. They know better than Christ about what is Christian. And the reason for that is the central issue for Christian nationalism, which is it has taken some of the rhetoric from the Bible, some of which does speak about a kind of spiritual warfare, and it's translated into a much more literal idea of warfare. 
the point in warfare is to win. And the point in spiritual warfare is to reach people's souls. When the pastor says that turning the other cheek doesn't work, and Russell Moore says it never worked, what he means by never worked is it never worked at amassing power for the person who did it. Literal money and authority in, in the society, but it gave them spiritual power and it gave them peace. And so it worked in the sense that we were making a better world because people were using, exercising some judgment and letting others live the way they want to live and turning the, the other cheek or loving your enemy again or doing unto others. That those things don't work to bring you power, to bring you literal, physical money and power. But they give you a spiritual power and authority because they're the good and decent, humane things to do that make it a better world. Dan, I know you'll be supporting this release. It comes out, I believe, mid-February of this year, which I'm looking forward to more people being able to see it. What's next for you after that? Well, there's a lot of things bubbling up. I don't know if there's anything I could talk about right now, but I do have another film that's in the pipeline that is shortly behind it, hopefully shortly behind it, which is called Untruth, which is imagined as a kind of sequel to the film Unfit. Unfit was a film, the subtitle, which was the psychology of Donald Trump. And I think for untruth, which unfortunately is necessary, is going to be the subtitle is going to be the psychology of Trumpism. Because I think that Trump's personal psychopathologies are not really the point. They weren't even really the point the first time around, though they are very predictive of how he's going to act when he's given power, because that is a well-documented personality type. The malignant narcissist is a well-documented personality type, and we've seen what people with that personality profile are capable of when they're given power. Now, they are capable of horrific things when they're not in power, meaning there's monsters like that who don't rise up to the top, who just, you know, create havoc in the lives of the, the people who they're interacting with because of their absolute sociopathy their absolute willingness to hurt and destroy others if it brings them anything, anything at all, pleasure, just enjoyment even. Anyway, so that film, Untruth, is really about psychology of Trumpism and about the ways in which disinformation and authoritarianism working together at the moment to destabilize the society. Once again, the name of the film is God and Country. It opens in theaters on February 16th, 2024. Dan Partland, thank you so much for your time today. This was great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 